Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for April 2013. I'm Neil Orford and we're going to go through the articles that caught our interest in the critical care literature last month. So let's start with meningitis. In JAMA, there's a study that looked at educational achievements and economic self-sufficiency in adults who had had a childhood bacterial meningitis. So we know bacterial meningitis in children can have devastating complications, ranging from death and severe disability to hearing loss, seizure disorders, motor deficits and cognitive impairment. This unique study adds adult complications to this list through a nationwide follow-up of all Danish children with bacterial meningitis between 1977 and 2007. They report that of 2,924 patients, 3.8% with meningococcal meningitis died, 8.3% with pneumococcal meningitis died, and 3.8% of haemophilus influenza meningococcus had died. Now in the meningococcal meningitis group, 11% fewer had finished school, 7.9% fewer had a higher degree by 35 years of age than the general population, but this did not differ significantly from their siblings. In addition, parents of meningococcal patients had lower educational achievements prior to the child's onset of meningitis than population-matched controls. In the pneumococcal meningitis group, 10% fewer had finished school, 9% fewer had a higher degree by 35 years of age than the general population, but this was lower than their siblings, and the parents were no different to the population controls. Finally, in the haemophilus group, 5.5% fewer had finished school, 6.5% fewer had a higher degree by 35 years of age than the general population, and this was also lower than the siblings. And again, like pneumococcus, parents were no different to the population controls. So these findings imply that the lower level of education achieved among pneumococcal and haemophilus influenza meningitis patients may stem from neurocognitive deficits induced by the meningitis episode, while in meningococcal meningitis patients it is associated with other non-meningitis factors. And that's really interesting. A second meningitis paper was published in Intensive Care Medicine, called Delayed Cerebral Thrombosis in Bacterial Meningitis, a Prospective Cohort Study. Now, this prospective nationwide study, based in the Netherlands from 2006 to 2012, reports the incidence of delayed cerebral thrombosis following proven bacterial meningitis. What they found was, firstly, the incidence was 1.1%, that is, 11 of 1,032 cases. Ten of these had pneumococcal meningitis, one had listeria. Dexamethasone was given before the first dose of antibiotics in nine patients, but was associated with a decrease in mortality in all meningitis from 30 to 20%. All made a good initial recovery, then deteriorated at 7 to 42 days, with multiple cerebral infarcts in the anterior and posterior circulations, and they all had bad subsequent outcomes. And finally, Patients with delayed cerebral thrombosis had an eight-fold higher concentration of complement 5A in their CSF. So an interesting study about a relatively uncommon but devastating complication. A somewhat novel study published in JAMA looked at the effects 
of an investigational vaccine for preventing staph aureus infections after cardiac surgery. And this was a randomised trial. So this is a fairly unexpected addition to the critical care literature. It's a double-blind RCT where they examined the effect of a novel vaccine, V710, given IM preoperatively on the rate of serious post-operative staph aureus infection following cardiac surgery. Now, the primary outcome was bacteremia and deep sternal wound infection with an event-driven sample size. This meant enrolment was driven by the number of outcomes, not the number of patients entered, and that was the number of staph aureus cases. An estimated 15,000 patients were expected to be enrolled in order to accrue the 107 staph aureus cases necessary. The Data Safety Monitoring Committee recommended stopping the trial after the second interim analysis due to lack of efficacy and possibly higher rate of multi-organ failure and mortality in the vaccine group. Now, at this stage, 7,983 patients have been enrolled with a primary event rate of 2.6 in the vaccine group versus 3.2 per 100 years in the placebo group. That's a relative risk of 0.81. The V710 group had more injection site adverse events with no difference in vaccine-related serious systemic adverse events or pre-operative deaths. There was no difference in overall mortality but more post-operative multi-organ failure with the vaccine and also significantly more patients with staph aureus infections died in the vaccine group than the placebo group. So the authors then go on to discuss the issues around trying to improve humoral immunity against staph infections and reasons for the paradoxical increase in harm. So it's not something that looks like it's going to affect us, but an interesting study and design nonetheless. Another unique type of study published in Critical Care Medicine is factors predisposing to coma and delirium, fentanyl and midazolam exposure. Now, this study is worth a second look as it tries to separate out factors that contribute to coma or delirium. They look at the effects of common sedatives, midazolam and fentanyl, covariates, organ dysfunction, age, BMI, delirium risk factors, administration of drugs that affect the CYP450 metabolism, uh, and blood-brain barrier transporters like P-glycoprotein substrates and inhibitors, And finally, genetic polymorphism. It's a very complex design and very detailed study. They report on 99 patients who received midazolam and or fentanyl and didn't have another cause for coma. And what they found was that midazolam and fentanyl were associated with coma and it was dose-related. No surprises there. The number of days in coma was independently associated with the number of days who received cytochrome P3A inhibitors but not P-glycoprotein substrate inhibitors. Midazolam was not associated with delirium. Delirium was associated with the inflammatory response. And delirium and midazolam do not seem to be mechanistically linked. So that's interesting. Another study in critical care medicine looks at the role of iodinated contrast medium in acute kidney injury in the critically ill. So the question is, is iodinated contrast medium harmful in critically ill patients? Certainly this has created debate, as ICU patients are at risk of acute kidney injury from disease, nephrotoxic agents, and although the the additional risk imposed by contrast is known in other populations, is it real or is it negligible in the critically ill? 
This prospective observational study compares ICU patients who receive contrast media to ICU patients who have an inter-hospital transfer, the control group. The groups were not particularly well matched at baseline. However, the authors were able to propensity match 146 of the 307 contrast media patients with controls, and they report no difference in respective serum creatinine changes over 96 hours, no difference in acute kidney injury incidence, and that risk factors for acute kidney injury were so threat inclusion and number of nephrotoxic agents, not contrast media. Now, the authors acknowledge the limitations of study design and propose that the known nephrotoxic effects of contrast media in critical illness may not add substantially to the risk of acute kidney injury progression. Thus, the use of contrast media for diagnostic reasons is supported. In addition, they tell us an RCT of over 1,500 patients would be required to prospectively investigate this. That would be interesting to resolve this once and for all. Staying on the topic of kidney injury and critical illness, we have another systematic analysis of fluid resuscitation with 6% hydroxyethyl starch in acutely ill patients. Now this is done by the Chest Management Committee and it looks at the evidence for hydroxyethyl starch as an ICU resuscitated fluid because three major RCTs have been published in 2012 and they contributed 77% of all enrolled patients. As we suspect, they find that patients randomly assigned to resuscitation with 6% hydroxyethyl starch, 130, are at significantly increased risk of being treated with renal replacement therapy. They conclude, the risks associated with exposure to the newer formulations of hydroxyethyl starch are now consistent across several large-scale trials with a low risk of bias. Further research may identify which patient subgroups are at greater risk of harm from exposure to 6% HES-130. In particular, individual patient data meta-analysis of existing trials might identify patient characteristics conferring increased risk. We would recommend the use of other fluids until it is understood if there are any patients who are likely to receive a net benefit when they are fluid resuscitated with 6% HES-130. So it will be interesting to see what individual patient data meta-analysis reveals, and we look forward to those results. And to finish off, there were three big studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, the first is the complications of mechanical ventilation, the CDC's new surveillance paradigm. So the definition of VAP has been problematic due to subjective criteria like change in the quality or quantity of sputum production, pressure to improve VAP outcomes, resulting in surveillance artefact. So evidence for this includes a greater 50 than 50% of non-teaching medical ICUs in the US report VAP rates of zero. This in an environment where cross-sectional surveys show 15% of patients receive antibiotics for nosocomial pneumonia and that VAP tracking by clinicians and infection preventionists shows consistent underreporting by the former. Finally, autopsy series show that a third to half of patients with clinical criteria for VAP don't have it. So in response to the competing need to report VAP for benchmarking with the increasing use of quality measures, the CDC convened leaders of professional societies in critical care, infectious diseases, healthcare epidemiology and respiratory therapy to develop better measures. And they've shifted from VAP surveillance to a new paradigm 
of complications of mechanical ventilation or the ventilator-associated events algorithm. So this includes ventilator-associated condition, infection-related ventilator-associated complication, at possible pneumonia and probable pneumonia. Uh, it's worth having a look at these and the way they've changed the definitions, including things like radiographic criteria are not included anymore as they introduce subjectivity and inaccuracy. The second big trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine is a randomised trial of glutamine and antioxidants in critically ill patients. And this is published by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. The interest in antioxidants and glutamine has been bubbling away in the critical care literature, with evidence suggesting benefit, but no definitive large multi-centre RCT. This 1,223-patient, 40-ICU, blinded, 2x2-factorial trial randomised ventilated patients to supplements of glutamine, 0.35 milligrams per kilogram per day IV, plus enteral dipeptide equivalent of 30 grams glutamine a day, or antioxidant, selenium, enteral selenium, zinc, beta-carotene, vitamin E and vitamin C, or both, or placebo. They found a trend to increased mortality at 28 days with glutamine, odds ratio of 1.28, increased mortality at 6 months with glutamine, Glutamine had no effect on organ failure rates or infectious complications. Antioxidants had no effect on outcome. In a small 66-patient sub-study, they did not consistently find glutamine deficiency. The possible reasons for different results to previous studies offered by the authors include previous studies were smaller and less methodologically robust. This study used high dose of glutamine, given as enteral and IV forms. This study targeted shock multi-organ failure patients, while previous studies excluded this population. This study initiated treatment within 24 hours of ICU admission, while other studies used it at a later time. And most patients were enterally fed. Other studies were mainly parenteral nutrition. In summary, it appears in ventilated patients with shock and multi-organ dysfunction the use of early antioxidants is of no benefit and glutamine may be harmful. Now, is that enough to close the book on this? Arguably, the effects on some other critically ill populations could be examined, like those with proven glutamine deficiency or those with less acute or perhaps chronic critical illness. But still, it makes the argument for glutamine and critical illness hard to justify. And finally, the first of what we must suspect will be many studies published about the new H7N9 virus, the novel avian origin influenza A in China. The H7N9 virus infection has not occurred in humans before, and this paper describes the emergence in China of the first poultry-to-human transmission. Features include rapid identification using real-time reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction assays, viral culturing and sequence analyses, Clinical features including fulminant pneumonia, respiratory failure, acute respiratory distress syndrome, septic shock, multi-organ failure, rhabdomyolysis and encephalopathy, and 100% mortality in the first three cases. The accompanying editorial points out it is unlikely that we will find resistance in any age groups due to the absence of previous infections in humans, 
And we will have to wait and see if this infection defervesces to a contained case of bird-to-human transmission or escalates to human-to-human transmission and pandemic status. As we all know, that has continued to spread throughout China and uh, surrounding countries, and there are now over 100 cases with what looks to be a 25% mortality. So that's it for the month. If you want to find out more or see some other papers, come to the Critique Journal Club. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next month. Bye.